You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's the night before things get started, and we're on 33rd Street, right next to Madison Square Garden, and we're about to enter. New York, as a convention, was a real boost to his candidacy and his legitimacy as a serious uh, candidate and not, you know, some guy that just, you know, fell off a turnip truck from Georgia. We have an America that, in Bob Dylan's phrase, is busy being born, not busy dying. Carter would cut my head off to uh, carry North Dakota. Cut both your legs off to carry uh, a ward in the Bronx. Sweeney was a burly man and the assistant majority leader for the Ohio House of Representatives. He was also twice a boxing champion. He was an alternate at his party's convention in New York City in 76, and he drove from Ohio to get there in his least 1976 Monte Carlo. He parked on 26th Street, a few blocks from where the convention would occur, in front of an apartment he was staying. The day before the convention was to start, he went on and got lunch, and when he came back, he saw that there was a man in his car. He had busted the window, and he was robbing him of a camera that was in the back seat. Sweeney went over to him. Excuse me, do you have a match? The man looked up surprised, and as soon as he did, he had his chin up, That's where Sweeney's fist would go. The delegate would knock the thief against the car. Hey, take it easy. Look, I I can't get arrested. I can't be in trouble again. I'll pay for the broken window. Sweeney had it pinned against the car for a time, but hesitated a bit when he offered to pay. The thief took that opportunity, broke off, and ran. Sweeney runs after him. This draws a crowd on the sidewalk who see the 230-pound man and this much smaller one. Hey, leave him alone, buddy! Sweeney answers back. He broke into my car! Oh, the New Yorkers say. Then beat him! Sweeney pins him down on the sidewalk. Boff, another right! And intends to make a citizen's arrest. The man's pleading. I can't take another on my rap sheet! Well, that's on you. Even in Taxi Driver Error New York, this was a commotion, and a large crowd had come in from a nearby tavern and watching a man who would soon be picking a president of the United States deliver more punishment to the sneaky character. A New York City police car does pull up. What's going on? He broke into my car. It was a misunderstanding. He got the wrong guy. Cops weren't fooled. They took the car thief from the back of the patrol car but not before complaining to Sweeney. Hey, the one cop says, why don't you finish him off? 
What do you mean? An arrest will take hours. It only takes a few minutes to fill out a homicide sheet. They could have been joking or not. Do you want to press charges? Yes, Sweeney says. Okay. Court tomorrow, 930. That's how the Democratic National Convention of 1976 began for one delegate. All Cheryl Kosalek wanted to do, the visitor from New Jersey to New York City, was watch a musical. When she was confronted with a man in a bush jacket and two sandwich boards with balloons tied to them. Come see Jimmy Carter, he said. The matinee was about to start. Do I really get to meet him? Yes, of course. The smiling volunteer, one of dozens in the street on 52nd Street and New York 7th Avenue. She'd said she'd do it, but I'll wait till after the main knee. He'll probably still be talking. Another New Yorker was much less receptive. Jimmy Carter? Jimmy Carter stinks. A woman carried a poster. No matter who is elected president, the United States is cursed because of its sins. Want to meet Jimmy Carter? Want to meet Jimmy Carter? Persisted until the candidate made his appearance at a hastily constructed rostrum with red, white, and blue bunting to fit the bicentennial year of the United States, 1976. Sidewalk crawlers stopped to listen to the Georgian, or perhaps just to the Calypso band, or to see what the heck was going on on the street. This new candidate who would get the nomination of one of the country's two major parties in the United States, even though, just a year before, no one had ever heard of him. Heck, three months ago. Only those really closely following the Democratic primaries might have even known him. When a California delegate at his last party's convention tried to put Jimmy Carter's name in nomination for vice president, the 1972 convention, The secretary of the party, who had four decades of experience in democratic politics and knew who she was supposed to know, responded, Jimmy who? Now here he was. Eighteen blocks away at Madison Square Garden, workmen were putting the finishing touches on the podium where that man would speak to the nation. Delegates were arriving big-eyed from all over the country to various hotels. Coca-Cola sponsored flags of each state running down Park Avenue. The Empire State Building was lit in red, white, and blue. The village voice sneered that New York had been transformed into a Potemkin village. And in New York's Pier 88, there was Jimmy again, shaking hands with delegates. It wasn't like delegates were just going to go there and see the candidate come out on stage. He was greeting them. They whispered as he our governor. The media is set up at the end of the pier. That is their problem, Carter says. He wants to be here to greet the people that supported him all the way to the convention. Carter supporters are welcomed with fried chicken. Another story to play up, the image of Carter as the anti-candidate. 
Carter was depicted as, uh, you know, just completely this guy who just ached of sincerity and honesty. That's Rick Perlstein. He's the author of The Invisible Bridge, soon to be author of Reaganland. This this film and also the amazing TV commercials in which he was uh, were produced by this guy, Gerald Rafshoon, who'd just kind of been an Atlanta ad man and was hired by Carter for his first gubernatorial race in 1966. And Raf said Carter didn't even know which end of the camera to look in then. He just talked with us a little bit about 76, but we're going to have him on to talk more about the 1980 convention. So look out for that in mid-August. The press was, you know, kind of obsessed after Watergate with um, uncovering the artifice behind the campaign. But that the people in Carter's campaign were just kind of willing, willing participants in this kind of stuff. And they would love to be interviewed and explain how they did what they did. They would um, test market phrases, which was way ahead of its time. Phrases like, you know, I'm not from Washington and I'm not a lawyer. And the ones that got big applauses from the pro- uh, the, the crowd they kept and the ones they didn't, uh, they didn't keep. And I think that um, the 1976 convention was probably the capstone of their accomplishment in packaging Carter as just what the country needed after Watergate and losing the Vietnam War. Jimmy Carter goes to the Americana Hotel, a lobby filled with reporters, and said, I'd like to announce my choice for vice president. The lobby tenses. As soon as I'm sure who the choice for president will be. But no one thinks that choice for president will be anyone else but Carter. Brown is running, and Mo Udall and him are trying to fight each other over who will come in second. But it's a distant second. Carter has enough delegates for a first ballot win. The publisher of the New York Times throws a party for this candidate. Everyone's there. Except for Carter himself. The mayor throws a bash. The governor sees this as a working trip, his people say. Bob Strauss, DNC chair, is honored. He says he hopes this convention will be dull. No fights. Every session has its medicine. To the Democrats this year, I prescribe a sedative. There's no one to fight. Candidates Humphrey and McCarthy are here in New York, but only for ceremony. Humphrey will address the convention in a blue suit. McCarthy will mumble about how lousy a candidate Carter is. He's going to go for Reagan in four years. Humphrey will call the other party Tories. It's his swan song. Mayor Abe Beam will express his love for Texas. The Texas delegation will say, we love New York. And Abe Beam will throw him a party in New York's Rainbow Room. We'll wear a big cowboy hat. Rolling Stone magazine will throw another party for the candidate as well at the swanky automation house, the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Carter won't go. He's busy working on his speech. The crowd is huge. The space is small. Carter's people, Powell, Cadell, Refshoon, they're young enough and hip enough to represent the candidate at this young people's politics party. Carter's sons, Jeff, Jack, and Chip, are there, representing Dad. But socialites and stars can't get into the automation house party. Lauren Bacall, Warren Beatty, Ben Bradley, and Catherine Graham are waiting on the rope line when the doors are shut. It's a neat little reversal of fortune from how things normally go, and it's mentioned in a lot of newspapers. As the Georgians get in, and the New Yorkers seem to be in the outs. 
Walter Cronkite slips right in. He can go anywhere. It's the Three Network Age. Media welcome the delegates. The taxis can be claustrophobic behind their plastic mugger shields. And now and then, they seem to be driven by surly crackpots exploring new frontiers in rudeness. Advice to the delegates. If possible, look for oversized checkered cabs. Or call a radio cab. They're more likely to be cleaned and air-conditioned. The media did everything it could to tell the delegates where to go. An egg cream at the fashion luncheonette. After theater buffet at the Algonquin. Fix your walking sticks or umbrellas at Uncle Sam at West 45th Street. Try the little village storefront, Alfredo, where cold broccoli salad is great. Bring your own bottle of wine. Delegates were tempted to go to Siegel's for chicken fat-drenched kosher meals. To Le Cirque for the spaghetti primavera. For Peter Luger's in Williamsburg for steak. Or have a mutton chop at Keen's where there were clay pipes, including those smoked by Taft, Roosevelt, and Adelaide Stevenson. Got to throw a Democrat in there. Or to enjoy the thrill of being insulted by Elaine at the restaurant Elaine's. Or to have caviar in a baked potato at 21. Bring money. By the upper-level entrance to the Oyster Bar in Grand Central Station is a stone arch. By stationing themselves at one corner and their partner 50 feet away, visitors can articulate messages, and it will be traveled through that stone arch with the fidelity of a CB receiver. Billy Carter walked through the streets at dawn, drinking copious amounts of beer. I never heard anything good about New York, and since I've been here, I haven't seen anything bad. Peanuts are everywhere, the media blared. Hostesses waxed repsodic over the New South and peanut cheek. All a New Yorker had to do, Michael Kramer of New York Magazine, was put a tub full of goobers on the sideboard, and a few folks from the Carver camp would arrive, like that nice Hamilton Jordan, referring to Carter's main aide. Kramer's being a little New York rude. Out of Tyners get advice. A delegate from Hawaii was told to learn judo to deal with New York streets. Clutch your purse with both hands. Hide your Democratic National Badge. Delegate Al Murphy convinced himself and trained himself not to look up at the buildings. To get to the Americana Hotel, where many delegates were, to Madison Square Garden, where the convention was, in about five minutes for 50 cents. If you took the subway, most delegates and convention visitors preferred to pay $2 for a taxi. The New York City subway system, 708 noisy, grimy, fascinating miles, is one of the wonders of the world, so wrote Richard Reeves in a book on the convention. Jack and Joan Haynes lived on a farm near Chardon, Ohio, and when Miss Haynes was elected as a delegate, they decided this was the time for their children to see how the other half lived, with their 15-year-old son and their 10-year-old twins, Jason and Lauren. On Wednesday afternoon, they decided to take the subway from the Sheraton to the Madison Square Garden, a pretty short ride. They were directed to an entrance just outside the hotel, 
55th Street and 7th. Two levels below ground, they stepped into a waiting car. Will this take us to Madison Square Garden? Jack asked. No, this is uptown. It was the wrong car. Take any train across the platform. They hustled out of the car, and the door snapped shut. It was a moment before Mrs. Haynt realized that their younger daughter, Lauren, hadn't made it. Her face was in the moving window, her hands banging the dirty glass. Her twin Jason ran wildly along the train, trying to pull the doors open until his father caught him. Joan Haynes stood terrified while her husband raced away, looking for the dispatcher, anyone in authority. Right then, this woman, just an average New York subway rider, appears out of nowhere to help. There's nothing you can do. You can't leave because someone might send her back here. I'll get on the next train and check every station to Queens. What's her name? On the train, Lauren was sobbing, and passengers told her to get off at the next station and wait. She did get off and sat on a bench. When the next train clattered in, the woman got off and walked directly to her. Is your name Lauren Haynes? The woman and Lauren, hand in hand, were back at 55th Street within 10 minutes. Joan Haynes broke into tears, embracing the woman and then her daughter, turning to say, We don't even know your name. The woman was gone. Claire Smith was warned several times to stay away from the subway, never the subway. At 17, she was the youngest delegate. She'd be 18 in November. Her face had already been in People magazine. She was sought out by newspapers, TV. Look this way, doll. Smile for the camera. Here, let's get a picture of you and John Glenn. After she unpacked in her hotel room, her local TV news crew caught up with her, asked her to repack her luggage, and then unpack again for the TV cameras. And all she wanted to do was meet Hunter Thompson. That wasn't out of the question. The renegade Rolling Stone reporter was friend of Jimmy Carter's, and he was present at this convention. He had met the Georgia governor in 74 after being very impressed by a speech of his and visiting him and Hunter Thompson uh, unannounced at the Georgia mansion. I think he's one of the three meanest men I've ever met. In a TV interview later, after the convention, after Carter became president, he talked about Carter uh, in a surprising way. I think he's one of the three meanest men I've ever met. The other two were Muhammad Ali and Sonny Barger, the president of the Hells Angels. Those three men are a whole cut above everybody else I've ever, ever run into in terms of sheer functional meanness. Functional meanness? Yeah. Well, meaning the ability to get from A to either B, C, M, Z, whatever you want. Carter would cut my head off to uh, carry North Dakota. Cut both your legs off to carry uh, a ward in the Bronx. Never apologize for it. He understands the system. That's why he won. That's really all I said. I admire that. Fritz Fall was getting a lot of news coverage. He came with the Democrats abroad. He was a draft dodger or amnesty seeker, draft resistor, depending on how you saw the issue, here to plead his case and put the issue of draft resistance front and center on American TV screens. This was still a live issue, how they were going to handle those who had fled their draft during the Vietnam War. Carter's friends, Patricia and Lansing Lee from Georgia, were astonished the city was clean and to be treated well. It was almost disappointing, Lansing said. 
people at the delegation were surprised by how New York was. I talked with John Poland, who was a member of the Texas delegation. I was, uh, I was like Gomer Powell going to the big city, you know, walking around going golly, looking up the big buildings. Uh, it was fascinating. Stayed at the Essex House right across from Central Park. I had a really good time there. It was just fun for a, I just turned 22, and for a 22-year-old kid, it was uh, a great time. It was really a celebration. This was not the case for the Ohio delegate who we talked about earlier. After he wrestled his car thief, he wanted to press charges. The two officers showed up, reluctantly. The man's wife screamed at him, You've got the wrong man! You've got the wrong man! My husband didn't do this! He told the lady, I caught him myself! The man's lawyer came to him and said, Please drop the charges. You don't want a trial. Says, We can postpone the trial. You'll have to keep coming back from Ohio to here. The prosecutor even tells him, You really don't want a trial. It's going to create a lot of difficulty for everybody. And then even the judge calls him into quarters and says, You're not going to get anywhere. He decided to settle for just getting his money back from the man. He came out of the courthouse to find his car was gone again. This time it was not a thief. One of the police officers said, They tow here from these spots. New York was not perceived as a safe place to be. I talked with Billy Rogers, who wasn't a delegation member, but he's traveling with the Texas delegation. But I didn't, um, I didn't really feel that then. It was probably just because I was young and stupid. I think my mom's first instinct was to be scared, to let her 14-year-old kid go to New York, uh, unchaperoned with John Poland. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my dad, uh, I know they talked about it. And, you know, I think um, they, they decided that... Uh, um, I'd, I'd never forgive them if <laughs> they didn't let me go. You know, being 14, I, I remember when I was 15 years old or shortly thereafter the convention, uh, you know, my mom had told me I had to come in at 10 o'clock. And my response was, I've been on Times Square at 2 a.m. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not coming home at 10 o'clock tonight. I want to tell you, it was party after party, and I mean party not in a, a, a bad way, although I did wind up on, uh, I don't know where, one morning about 4 a.m. having breakfast with Hunter Thompson and a couple of people, but we had a really good time. But it wasn't so nice for Hal Timinis of the Texas delegation. On the first day, he was walking uh, from his from the Hotel Pierre after getting a drink and was mugged and robbed of $500, his only funds for the convention. Some who didn't like George Wallace very much found it to be poetic justice. I hate to get a kick out of anybody's misfortune, but kind of got a kick out of hearing that he'd been mugged in Central Park. <laughs> Being a George Wallace delegate, if you remember back. Tamanis would have to borrow from people in order to eat during the rest of the week. Mazzy Woodruff, a shipping clerk from North Carolina, In her town of Sparta, she was part of a loose and secret coalition with two white candidates that the three of them, with very different friends, might be able to collect enough votes together to get them all to the New York delegation. It almost worked, except that the two candidates she was in league with cut a deal with the county Democratic chairman, and they got the two first places on the ballot, leaving Woodruff alone. 
somewhere in the bottom and not likely to be elected. When she complained to the chairman, she was offered an alternate seat. No, she spoke to the county Democratic Convention. I came here today just like you, looking for a piece to loaf. I'm not going to settle for crumbs. I won't go as an alternate. I won't go to New York and watch other people vote for president. I won't sit in the balcony. For too long, my people have stood in the balcony. Those words were in the newspaper, and Mazie Woodruff had no trouble being elected one of the 15 at-large delegates chosen by the convention. Now, she was walking down Broadway, determined to get her seat. Mazie Woodruff would become a very respected county commissioner and uh, would serve uh, well into the 80s, and there is a community center named after her. Joe Kasselak had no such cause. He was in New York for a simple reason. He wanted to be on TV. The Ohio Motor Vehicle Worker employee dabbed a little in local politics, was friendly with some of the politicos. He caught a ride with delegates in 1960 to the convention in Los Angeles and was accidentally photographed when he was standing between two Kennedy sisters. Since then, he'd been to every convention, 64 in Atlantic City, 68 in Chicago, all the while trying to get pictures in the in the paper. In 1972, he pretended to be a photographer to get credentials. Here, a delegate was lending him a badge. Badges were a hot commodity in this town. New York's finest police provided armed guards to the canvas sacks that went from the printer's office to the Madison Square Garden. Multicolored badges, 20 different colors. For these few days, these badges were everything. Even TV stars and movie stars Telly Savalek, yes, Kojak, Warren Beatty, and Shirley MacLaine would seek them out and receive them would be at this convention. Jacqueline Kennedy, Onassis would get one. So would Walter Cronkite. These badges were counted by computer and guarded, delivered to the hotels where the 56 delegations were each morning. Each day they had to get new badges to be allowed in that day. That way, they could be yanked. In total, there were something like 30,000 badges, 3,500 to the actual delegates, 2,000 to alternates, 399 to DNC members, 68 to Democratic senators, 321 Democratic House members, 42 to governors, 39 to lieutenant governors, guests of these, another 3,600, guests of the committee, 6,600. Everyone tried to get more. Everyone tried to get other people's credentials. They had to be approved by the chairman of the party, Texan. Robert Strauss. Strauss was a veteran of politics, a Lyndon Johnson protege, and he had taken over as the DNC chair after the failure of the McGovern campaign in 1972 and cut the DNC's debt by 80%. The party was successful in the 74 midterms after Watergate, but had not won a presidential election now in eight years. Robert Strauss managed anything in The key was these badges. He held a few extra thousand for guests of the chairman. There were also 550 to staff, several for each presidential campaign, 1,500 to security, 5,200 to news media, and 150 to the orchestra, which would play at Robert Strauss's direction. 20 blocks uptown at the offices of the New York Host Committee, Mimi Gerbst was having trouble getting off the phone at all. On each of the first two days of the convention, the committee had handled 150 requests. 
for honored guest credentials. By noon, she had already received 500 requests for the night's nominating session. She also found that there was a way of deciding who got in and who did not. It's the checkbook. Money controls everything. The rich ones made it, and it was sorry for everybody else. The push was on. Nobody would be outside the garden giving out tickets tonight. Rima Parkhurst of the Democratic National Committee's Credential Office was approached by 40 delegates who said that they had lost their credentials and needed another. Okay, she said, we'll give them to you and put your original numbers on the hot list. When the thief tries to get in, the police will grab him. Figuring out what that meant, strangely, all 40 of them said they would not take new credentials. They would look and find those old ones that they lost. Robert Strauss, the chairman, was stingy about the demand for badges. But he did find badges for an unexpected party. The sanitation department head of New York, not the mayor, not even the sanitation commissioner or a member of the city council, the guy who would be in charge of cleaning up the garbage. He got a phone call from DNC Chair Strauss. I want to talk to you about the direction of the party. Let me know if you need badges. Oh, and how can we make sure the city looks great for the TV cameras? Sixty more men were put on overtime. $115 per man per shift. As New York's strongest, yes, New York Sanitation Department got to work making the area around the garden look good. Mayor Abe Beam of the city of New York was on board pushing for the New York Convention, telling the police to remove the prostitutes, the so-called prosies, or as the cops in the area sometimes called them, the Minnesotans, to push them elsewhere, at least keep them from soliciting delegates during the convention. A loitering law that was passed by Mayor Beam and his council right before the convention was designed for this purpose. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Robert Strauss paid tens of thousands of dollars to book a single elevator in the Statler Hilton across from the Madison Square Garden at that time. It's now the Hotel Pennsylvania. The reason was he didn't want to get cornered in the elevator and have to talk to somebody outside of his plans. You'd make an appointment to see the chairman, unless you were somebody the chairman wanted to talk to, like the head of the New York City Sanitation Department. There's a reason for Strauss and the others to be so cautious. 
Everybody thought that this would be a brokered convention, a divided convention, a convention that delegates would arrive with no winner. So did Richard Reeves, the journalist of the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, and several books, who was writing a book about this convention. Now, I have to tell you about Richard Reeves. He wrote three excellent books, President Kennedy, President Nixon, President Reagan, minute-by-minute accounts of the presidencies. Now, of course, it's not literally minute-by-minute because, um, you know, there's big gaps, But these were very useful for various podcasts on Kennedy going all the way back to 2006. Um, The Nixon one I've used for quite a while and used it heavily for Nixon in full and other stories. When you get the reaction from Nixon to Kent State after the bullets, where do you think I got that from? I was actually looking him up to see if he might be interested in talking. You never know. And unfortunately... Reeves died earlier this year, and it's quite a loss for journalism and for history a bit. He compiled a large staff and interviewed over a thousand people going to this convention, hoping to get that picture of a divided convention that would come out with some candidate. And instead, as his fellow political reporter Jules Whitcarver said, he had a pastiche. But it's a lovely pastiche, and yes, Richard Reeves' book is a source of for this podcast, including some of those delicate stories, along with with, uh, newspapers, journal proceedings, and other biographies. You have to understand about 1976. I really want to put it in time perspective for you. Um, There were no books about Carter because he came up too fast. You just didn't write books in an instant like that. It took time. So Reeves decided, okay, we're going to do one about the convention. And it still took until 1977, the next year, for the book to come out. Yeah, Carter came up pretty quick. And that's the whole thing to remember about this convention. Like, I don't even know what example to use with 2020. Because you think about it, I could say Pete Buttigieg, right? And um, even he had a longer period of rise and being talked about than Carter did, really. Carter was nowhere. In 19, you know, nowhere in 1975 and comes up basically from March and is being nominated in July. Can you imagine that? So if you think about it, we know those months really well in 2020 because that's when, at least in the United States, the COVID epidemic began. So just think about from the time that many of us are in lockdown to July, that's really the only time when Carter was even known in public. We'll get more into that. It should have been a great story that Reeves was telling, but it we we have some insight into what might have happened. Strauss figured he would have the key spot in a brokered convention. He would be the person shielding the party from any reputational damage and making sure that it, what didn't happen was what happened in 1924, the last time Democrats came to New York. And that was something that was talked about in news articles. Don't let that disaster happen. But there might have been no candidate. Humphrey, Brown, Udall, Jackson, Church, and the upstart Carter, plus George Wallace, and some uncommitted delegates. We're all going to combine here. His own home state, Texas, the senator there, Lloyd Benson, had sw- uh, Texas had switched to a primary system that would elect delegates based on the state senate districts. 
That was a process that was expected to favor Lloyd Benson. So you have these favorite son candidates, too. No one has a majority. You get to New York. Strauss envisions a special procedure. It would be, as he described it, a smoke-filled room. 76, you can still have the smoke, but not inside. It would be a smoke-filled room, Strauss imagined, with everybody in it. 50 interest groups that make up the various ends of the Democratic Party, and you can think of all of them, you know, um, labor leaders, um, African-Americans, liberals, Southerners, women, Hispanics. There was a Latino caucus. There was was, um, all sorts of groups here that would then hash it out on TV with everybody watching, come up with a committee of 12, and that 12 would select the consensus nominee. That would have made a great book, but it didn't happen. But the good news is we've got what we've got. Why? For a simple reason. Carter already had the delegates. And so the TV was showing a Jimmy Carter at Mama Leone's. He would, they showed him at the Italian restaurant eating veal piccata, being a New Yorker, up in his room, writing out his speech on loose-leaf paper, watching himself on TV. Carter on Carter on TV, which is something now maybe doesn't seem as strange, but then was a really unique TV moment. The TV networks grumbled about this being a boring show, but the reality is TV was part of conventions since 1948. Political conventions had a role in promoting television service. 1952, the conventions were the first coast-to-coast, the first time coast-to-coast networks were unveiled. Hunt Brinkley and the Alkert and the Anchor Team were announced at the 56 conventions. In 1964, portable cameras took to the floor for the first time. And in 1968, color TV. Conventions were the parade of television. This was no different. Something else. Telecommunications. These red, white, and blue telephones that would reach each of the delegations, all the states and the territories, on the floor of the convention, so those in the various trailers could stay in touch. Various men who were in the running to be vice president, including Walter Mondale, senator from Minnesota, John Glenn, the former astronaut, now senator from Ohio, Frank Church, senator from Idaho, Edmund Muskie, senator from Maine, bought a special service from the New York telephone companies that will enable them to get a live line at any time. If Carter was calling, there would never be a busy signal. High-tech stuff. I feel that if I were on the convention floor, I could take the whole of my background in academia, at law, and the whole of my interview capacities. It's 1976, and already you see the beginnings of a revolution in television as you have this cable company a local public access Manhattan cable show called Five Day Bicycle Ride, where these very young people are out there interviewing everyone, including some journalists. And uh, at the same time, relate that to the greater common denominator for the American people, which is sport. Strangely, they go to Howard Cosell to ask him advice about how to cover things and about the networks. And use it irreverentially, satirically, and uh, draw a great deal, many more viewers 
So the ABC coverage, because ABC is my network, of the conventions. And that's what I'd like to do in answer to your question and why I'd like to do it. But I don't know that that will ever eventuate. I hope it does. I think it'd be interesting to see. Well, I hope it does, but I suspect I'm stigmatized forevermore in the trade phraseology as just a sports guy. Well, I think we've shown you to be more than that. I hope so. I hope so, too. <laughs> it's amazing. Howard Cosell needed a podcast. Then he could have done what he wanted to do. Uh, they also go on the street and interview. There's Everything is much more elaborate. Millions of dollars more spent here. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I say, it, if, you, if you really you know, want to get a, a good picture of it, you should go backstage and, and look at all the booths that, were, that are being put up there. These two Uncle Sams, they interview various protesters. They interview police who were talking about the possibility of demonstrations. Uh, which which never significantly materialized. On cable TV, Channel 10. On cable TV. Uh, what's the atmosphere going on here? I mean, what's expected today? Is it just preparation, or is I suppose uh, the most important thing that will happen today is that they'll commit and finally clean up the joint and uh, sweep up all the debris and uh, get ready for the big grand opening tomorrow. Right. What time is that? How did Carter get into the position to turn this convention from broker drama to a Carter coronation? Well, one of the places it was fought was in Texas. A few months ago, I did a podcast called Stop Carter. And if you remember that, it was really more about Jerry Brown than about Carter. And it was the campaign that Jerry Brown announced last minute to run against uh, this this upstart in the primaries, Jimmy Carter, and to dull his convention lead so that perhaps at least there'd be a brokered convention and maybe have a chance to get Jerry Brown for president. Now, the more that I look at it, even after having done that podcast and doing further research, it seems unlikely that you ever would have had a President Brown, uh, at least at that time. Jerry Brown was being used probably as a stalking horse by a lot of people. You know, he wins the state of Maryland, but it's really because the machine politicians are behind him. So that was one thing that I've learned. The other thing is that we said during that podcast that Carter had won in the primaries, Pennsylvania. His Pennsylvania win in April was very significant because it was a northern state. It was an industrial state. And it showed that Jimmy Carter was more than just you know, a southern guy. That, and I had said in there that it um, that turned the delegates in in Texas from Benson to Carter. Well, that's not exactly what happened. They're different delegates. So this was pointed out to me by a listener. And I'm very glad to have listeners who are aware of politics and, and history and even sometimes involved in it. And that was the case with J John Poland. The, the Texas ballot uh, requirement at the time was involved getting a number of signatures from each Senate district before January the 1st. So it was uh, designed to discourage participation. And John Poland was Carter's organizer throughout the state of Texas. It's a big state. And yes, Poland had to go in his own yellow Camaro, getting the requisite signatures 
to sign this candidate that no one had ever heard of in 1975, get him on the ballot in every district. Do you still remember the yellow Camaro? (laughs) I sure do, and I have friends from high school that still remember it and tell stories. Um, You know, it was... uh, it wasn't the ideal car for the campaign, uh, but uh, it, uh, of course, gas was was pretty cheap back then, so it worked out. You could count the campaign on one hand at that point. Uh, the campaign organizers uh, came to Dallas to, and reached out to a couple of uh, Naval Academy alum who were supporters, and they reached out to a couple of political people they knew. Dan Weiser being one of them, and Dan reached out to me and John Bryant and Pat Pangburn and a few other activists. But the first meeting we had with the Carter folks, if I remember correctly, around October of 75, and a total of probably eight people were there. Why Jimmy Carter? Did you kind of see him on TV or hear about him? No, no. I was, I was, a, I was a, a, a Jimmy... If you recall, Jimmy Who was a big, <laughs> was a big deal. Right. I was a Jimmy Who guy. I was a Jimmy <laughs> Who guy. I knew Dan Weiser and respected him. He was one of my mentors. When he laid out the politics to me, and he and the, and the reality was that I was against George Wallace getting the nomination. Uh, I, I wasn't really against Lloyd Benson. I didn't have anything, um, mm. you know, against Lloyd Benson. I just did not think he would be a viable candidate. And Jimmy Carter was our alternative. He wanted to come to Texas. He wanted to campaign in Texas. He wanted to get on the ballot. And being a governor from Georgia, uh, I thought if he could get on the ballot, he had greater potential and staying power than, uh, than Senator Benson. I asked John how what it was like persuading people, somebody they never heard of. The overwhelming, uh, most overwhelming and most persuasive argument was uh, in a democracy, you need to have choices. This guy wants to run. Give us a chance. You don't have to vote for him. Just get us on the ballot and see how it works out. Uh, And that argument carried the day more often than not. We spoke with Linda Hallmark Gamage about the Texas Carter campaign. I think it was the excitement of the unknown person in Texas being from the South, a governor. And, you know, we were kind of anti-establishment wanting to shake everything up and we had just like a little ragtag office i mean we didn't even have a coffee pot we were just you know i painted the first billboard sign for him we had no money concentrating on getting carter on the ballot and um i talked to billy rogers about that it was in the post-watergate world and and you know his honesty and integrity you know certainly appealed appealed to me, but also, and, you know, my parents were so involved in the civil rights movement. My mother was one of the founders of the Texas uh, Women's Political Caucus. Um, And the fact that Jimmy Carter came out of the South as a progressive governor who, um, you know, had the support of African Americans was not, you know, at the time, and you know, the 60s and 70s in the South. He represented the New South. The the first Carter people, we called them Charter Carters. I, I mean, I have these campaign buttons. I was for Carter before Ohio. Uh, 
when Carter won the Texas primary and the way they did it was there were 98 national delegates um, up for grabs in the primary and you actually voted for delegates with the candidate's name assigned to them. You didn't actually vote for the candidate. And, it, you know, I think the, the conventional wisdom was that Lloyd Benson had all the big names and, you know, I, I'm sure John uh, scrambled to put together 98 people for, for Jimmy Carter. And so I went to work to get the signatures and I did not meet Jimmy Carter until the day before we were filing the signatures, he flew into DFW airport. I met him. I spent 30 minutes with him and, and I, and I thought Dan Wilder was smart, but I'm going to tell you Jimmy Carter was pretty smart too. It was, it was, I was stunned. The first question he asked me was, are we going to get on uh, all the Senate districts, all 31 Senate districts? Just the fact that he knew we had 31 kind of surprised me. I said, yes, sir. We're going to make it an all. We, it's touch and go in a couple of them. And he said, the 27th, which even stunned me more. And I said, yes, sir. And uh, he goes, and he said, well, I'm not surprised. That's Senator Benson's turn. And that's exactly what it was. It was the Rio Grande Valley. The 27th Senate District was made up at that time of Hidalgo, Cameron, Starr, I think, and Duval counties. And uh, getting signatures and people to go against Benson down there was pretty tough. And we had, I think we had to get about 350 is all we had to get down there, maybe 400. But we probably just had a few more than that at that point. And I was worried that if they were to go through and, and uh, check them, that they would find that somebody wasn't registered or somebody didn't fill it out right. We would get knocked off the ballot there. So I was worried about that. But Jimmy Carter knew that was the problem. He knew a lot more than I thought he did. Uh, and... And he went out and, uh, he, that, you know, obviously, you know, our strengths are our weaknesses, and that was one of his strengths and his weakness. But he walked out into that press conference and announced that we were filing tomorrow and we were going to qualify in all 21 Senate districts, and he would be back to campaign in Texas. And, and then, you know, kind of smiled at me, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> the fun part, though, was the state convention in Houston when we had the uh, delegate selection um, committee for our national delegates, because it was just traditional for, you know, the governor and the attorney general and all the statewide, they just automatically assumed they were going to be super delegates, national delegates. And we were like, no, you guys were all for Benson. We want our Carter people on there as delegates. And, I mean, we wanted our, you know, we had plumbers and pipe fitters and electricians and firefighters and teachers and housewives and farmers. and. But because through the course of the primary, there was always the usual amount of politics and conflicts. Uh, the race was effectively over. Benson had dropped out after a, a poor showing in Oklahoma. Many of the people in the state who... Uh, uh, were with Benson were, were, were quietly, in some cases, not so quietly, pulling for uh, Carter. And there was an effort after the, the primary to, uh, you know, kind of replace all the original folks with uh, more Benson folks and Briscoe folks. He was our governor at the time. 
and uh, it evolved to where there was a kind of a happy medium where everybody was participating, and we got away from this, you know, who was for who first, and and we got we got past that pretty rapidly. We fought the establishment for national delegates. And, I mean, literally, we had Mark White, who was Secretary of State at the time. He was beating down our hotel room doors, demanding that we put Governor Briscoe on as a national delegate. And um, there was one state rep, Colin and I were laughing about this the other day. There was one state rep, G.J. Sutton, from San Antonio. And there was this major coalition to get him on as delegate. And they were beating down the door of our committee room when we were selecting delegates. And finally, I just said, oh, just put him on. He's going to die before the convention anyway. Well, he did. And so we had to find an alternate. <laughs> and one delegate on that. And we had to find fill that spot because it was the... Um, the mayor of Del Rio, his daughter-in-law, we had we had her on as a delegate and realized that she was um, she was a Mexican national, so we had to fill her spot with an alternate. But um, seriously, we didn't we did not want the all the usual elected officials. It just assumed they were going to be delegates. They were all for Benson, and so we you know we had to really fight to, to keep our people. And we didn't want to be, everybody kept trying to get Poland and I to be delegates, and we didn't want to be delegates because we wanted our people to fill the spots. And I think they call me half a delegate because I'm really small. But um, we, you know, we we were in charge of, of the delegates to, um, you know, go to New York. And, you know, a lot of them had never even flown. And for the most part, none of them had ever been to New York City. And it was my first trip to New York City. You know, it was 76. They were wearing white shoes, women in polyester pantsuits, the men in polyester suits. Um, they seated us at, they seated the Texas delegation at Madison Square Gardens. They seated us next to the New York delegation. And it truly became a love-in. By the end of the week, there were signs printed up, Texas loves New York, New York loves Texas. One thing that was settled about 1976 was the location. New York City was never much in doubt. It was kind of a default choice. Chicago now, after 68, the Democrats had the unjust feeling of failure. Miami, they didn't want a convention after the 72 ones. Still, Strauss said they were afraid of demonstrations. You could scare up a crowd in New York, and he was trying to get Kansas City and New Orleans. Los Angeles offered, and the Site Selection Committee, consisting of distinguished politicians, had Los Angeles and New York, but Strauss was worried what that little bastard would do. That little bastard was California Governor Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown, you'll remember from the Stop Carter episode, was kind of an oddball, sleeping in a small one-bedroom apartment outside instead of the governor's mansion. When the site committee comes to Los Angeles, Mayor Tom Bradley puts on a big show, wine and dine the delegates, making sure that, you know, Los Angeles is the place. The governor gives them a speech and tells them 
They're acting like a bunch of bigwigs. They should be stopped thinking about going to big dinners and maybe sleep in church basements. Governor Philip Knoll of Rhode Island accusing us of going to fancy parties. Well, he grew up in a governor's mansion. He doesn't have a full sea bag. It made Robert Strauss worry about a convention in Los Angeles, perhaps a demonstration, perhaps a riot like 68. And Brown, Ross Strauss said, would be sleeping on a mattress, refusing to call in the National Guard. I couldn't trust him. In the end, by default, the site committee, in the end, the site committee decides on New York. There's two key reasons. One, according to the Virginia Democratic Party chairman, Joseph Fitz, Joseph Fitzpatrick, he supports coal and used his vote, everything is traded in politics, used his vote for New York to get a stop on an overwrite of Gerald Ford's veto on a coal bill. Okay? And it's true that all of a sudden, while the site committee is meeting, Mario Biaggi and Samuel Stanton, New York congressman, switch their votes once New York is selected. Hugh Carey, the governor, and Abe Beam, the mayor, are Democrats. They very much want the convention to go to New York. Everyone denies that some trade was taking place, but nonetheless, this happens. All of a sudden, these New York congressmen get interested in coal. The second factor comes down to somebody we know. It's actually a non-action on the part of then-Delaware Senator Joe Biden. He doesn't vote. He's on the site selection committee, but tells Governor Knoll, you know, you have my proxy. Knoll, as we just learned, doesn't want anything to do with Los Angeles, and the vote is for New York. In the 1970s, you know, New York's not the way that we're thinking of it now. It was feeling the pain and in many ways needed help. There's a 1975 headline when Gerald Ford refused to help bail out the city with the federal money. Ford to New York, drop dead. Such a headline might actually help elect somebody uh, today, but this is 1976. New York isn't just like, oh, that city. It's in a swing state. New York State would go still between Republicans and Democrats. But you still have this media coverage that I don't think you'd think of today. Like The nation is going to have to decide what it wants to do with the Big Apple and the Northeast. That's the way New York was seen. Rotten. So said a network official who put $20,000 in the budget, even in those days, to deal with just one union that his television network would have to deal with in the Madison Square Garden. New York, Greece, it was called. Strauss made it a point when they picked New York to keep New York from ripping us off. And although television networks and others still had to pay a plan by one of the city commissioners to directly sell TV rights to even air the convention, was dashed by Abe Beam. The mayor wanted the city to look good on TV. The cops in the Secret Service were called in on July 6th by Garden officials, writes Richard Reeves, when a safety-locked four-and-a-half-pound television bulb dropped 75 feet from the ceiling to the floor where network technicians were working. An investigating team sent, sent into the dim space above the suspended ceiling by the pool, the joint camera lighting and sound operation of the three networks, discovered that more than 100 of the 425 maxi-brute bulbs put into the ceiling for the convention were loose or loosened. 
The 1,000-watt bulbs had last been checked and found safety lock just before the 4th of July holiday. Installation of these maxi-brutes and the operation of the sound system were two points of contention in a vocal running battle involving executives and unions of the gardens and the networks. The fight was over jurisdiction, which meant work and money to the competing unions and control to the executives. There had been months of negotiation, shouting, harassment, and sabotage as Local 3 of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Gardens Union, and the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, and the National Association of Broadcast Employees and Technicians, the network unions, struggled for lighting and sound supremacy. I think you had, between Hamilton Jordan and Jody Powell on the Carter side, and Bob Strauss, uh, you had people who knew how to work together, how to work as a team, how to work out differences, common objectives. You know, they both were going to do, or they all three were going to do very well only if Carter won. So there was no reason not, they, they were very pragmatic about that. And Bob Strauss is probably more so than anyone, would be focused on this. My job is to run this convention in such a way that it helps you and it doesn't hurt you. The Arrangements Committee carefully studied the Miami Beach Convention in 72 to avoid repeating mistakes. Incorporated with their papers was a memo on starting and ending times from the 1972 convention, a somber, a sober reminder of past failure. The sessions in Miami Beach had lasted through the night, and they ended at 4.52 a.m., then 6.20 a.m., then 12.52 a.m. McGovern's acceptance speech was at 3.45 a.m. No, this wasn't going to happen. Strauss would personally guard the podium if he had to, to make that happen and pull people off as needed. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Even if the vice president hasn't been nominated yet, we'll stop at 9 or 9.30 on Thursday night for the speech. When a Times reporter asked, has everybody agreed on that policy? Staffer told the Times, who's everybody? Strauss, agree- Strauss agrees with it. There's no real fights. Feminist forces led by Bella Abzug 
had come in demanding 50% of delegate slots. She's a congresswoman from New York. Demanded 50% of delegate slots for women at the 1980 convention. They didn't get that, but they came away satisfied with a deal promising the party would merely promote gender equality and that a President Carter would press for the Equal Rights Amendment. Jerry Brown and his people, uh, including his uh, relative Sam Brown, who came in demanding the endorsement by the convention of a full and complete pardon for those in legal or financial jeopardy for evading the draft or deserting the military. They didn't get what they wanted either, but came away relatively satisfied. An amendment that promised pardon consideration on a case-by-case basis. There is only one question in New York City's red, white, and blue 1976, and that is, who will Carter pick for the number two spot? First of all, there's nothing else to focus on. The party even eliminates at this convention minority planks from getting a hearing. They don't want the TV news to say what this convention is about. Unlike now, tradition was to wait until the convention to select who you're endorsing for nominee. Carter also doesn't want to get surprised to pick someone last minute. That hadn't worked out well. You know, the surprise, like Tom Eagleton at the 72 convention, when McGovern found that his running mate had problems he didn't know about. We'd only had a couple hours to decide who his running mate was. So people know the names. Carter had a process. There's Frank Church of Idaho. He's a liberal in the Senate. Carter could use his help with liberals. Church is from the West, and Carter enters five Western primaries and loses them all. He loses California to Jerry Brown. He's seen as having a, quote, Western problem. Frank Church could help him. There's Edmund Muskie. Carter's seen as having a Catholic problem. Perhaps Edmund Muskie could help him. Solid choice. Makes a great speech at the 1968 convention that kind of calms everybody down. Then there was John Glenn, now a U.S. senator from Ohio. But was he reaching the lower arc of his fame? You know, his uh, space flight had been more than a decade ago. He's considered Carter meets him in Plains, and both he and another hopeful, Minnesota's liberal senator Walter Mondale, go through the Plains, Georgia procedure of meeting some locals, including Leonard Wright, Carter's African-American sharecropper and one of Carter's oldest friends. And, you know, it's not a meeting about policies of the leader of the free world. It's a get-to-know-you kind of meeting. But it's pretty clear when these candidates are meeting with Wright that Carter's watching them to see how they deal with regular folks. If Wright senses something's off, he's definitely going to tell the man who's about to get the nomination. But both Glenn and Mondale do well. And there's even uh, a couple of papers later joke, they had the right stuff. Then there's Peter Rodino of New Jersey. Watergate adds a bunch of new players, and Rodino had headed up the Watergate committee. Putting him on would show the contrast between Ford's pardon of Nixon and how Carter was going to run the government. 
It would also help with Catholics, the politicals advised. I held off on any interviews until the process had completed, so Carter said. Carter's process included questionnaires. After McGovern's disaster and after Watergate, he wanted no surprises. His questionnaire included these questions of the potential vice president. What is the condition of your health? What outside income do you have? Have you ever gone for psychiatric treatment? Do you have any campaign funds on hand? If so, explain. Have you ever been sued? Have you ever been arrested? Is there any aspect of your personal life that would be embarrassing? How about close members of your family? Will you furnish copies of your last five years' federal tax returns? Every precaution was taken to keep Carter's choice secret. The phones were sweeped to see if there were any bugs. They felt that, particularly Linda Ellerby, a reporter, asked a question that led them to believe she had information from a phone call that had just occurred. An electrician did indeed find a power drop on one of the phone lines. This can occur when another device is taking power, like a, like a bug. But the results were inconclusive, and they never found the bug. Carter's printer, who's going to print like the Carter X 1976 campaign buttons and T-shirts and posters. The printer's told to print buttons with several of the candidates. You have to do them all, even though it's going to cost us money to keep people guessing. Carter meets face-to-face with Henry Scoop Jackson the senator from Washington State who we ran against. Now, everyone had said that Jackson was out of contention. Carter sort of puts him back in. The campaign floats Adelaide Stevenson III, a new name that no one had been previously talking about much. Lillian Carter, Carter's mom, says that the governor of Minnesota, Wendell Anderson, should be the pick because he's so handsome and would be good for the senior citizens. Uh, He had spoken to a meeting of the Grey Panthers. You know, I don't know if that was so much of a campaign, coordinated campaign step. Lillian Carter was saying basically whatever she wanted to. Carter said later in his memoir that he laughed when insiders and news reports claimed to have inside information on who the pick was. That was impossible, he said, because I didn't tell anyone. In fact, he said he was leading towards Frank Church for many months and then right before the convention, changed his mind several times. Candidates for the job knew that Carter didn't want pressure, didn't want people running for vice president, doing interviews, using the media to build up momentum. Edmund Muskie goes away. He goes to the uh, museum and a news van and two cabs full of reporters hitting the gas pedal, follow him. Everyone's got their phone setups ready for that call from Jimmy Carter. Monday night's speeches fuel the speculation even more and change the dynamics, perhaps, of the race. One of the potentials, John Glenn, is speaking as a keynote, all-American Marine astronaut. As Richard Reeves said, he had worked on the speech for three months, checking out copies of the last 100 years of keynote speeches from the Library of Congress searching for dignified, thoughtful directions to go. And before he goes up, he talks to the woman who will be the next speaker, Barbara Jordan of Texas, and says, uh, gives her a pep talk. You know, don't worry, you'll do fine. 
Glenn's speech was indeed dignified, lofty. He didn't reference the other party. He talked about values, America, and solutions. And it was a disaster. A fuzzy sound system didn't help. He wasn't stirring the delegates. In fact, they weren't even seated during his speech. They didn't stop mulling or talking. They, the sound of ch- crowd chatter was high that he had to talk over it. We must select new leaders. Leaders with visions, Glenn went on, but the crowd didn't hear it. Worse, the TV cameras were showing the crowd while he's talking. Some seats are empty. Mayor Daly's on the phone. Mondale's chatting with a reporter. Delegates are politicking, mulling around. Rosalind Carter's talking to Amy. Strauss starts getting nervous. He worries about the next speaker, that Barbara Jordan will also fail. He's pulled a lot of strings to get the first African-American woman to speak at a keynote at a national convention. And he tells her, don't let Glenn's experience disturb you. I don't think you can quiet that crowd. And if you can't, just ignore him. Speak to the camera. Remember, there's tens of millions of people in the audience. Don't worry about the people on the floor. Jordan turns to him and says, I won't let you down. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a very warm reception. After John Glenn, there couldn't be a more marked contrast. Barbara Jordan had wowed people during the Watergate hearings. And here, she does it again. ...to select a presidential candidate. Since that time, Democrats have continued to convene once every four years and draft a party platform and nominate a presidential candidate. And our meeting this week is a continuation of that tradition. But there is something different about tonight. There is something special about tonight. What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. The TV audience loves it. This is going to be one of those convention speeches remembered in history. We don't have video of William Jennings Bryan in 1896. But it's not just how it, the TV audience is seeing it. Even on the floor of the convention, those people that have been unmoved by Glenn, now when the TV cameras show the floor, they're quiet. Richard Daly puts down the phone. Tom Bradley, the mayor of Los Angeles, is just transfixed on the stage. All eyes are on Jordan. Strauss loves it. He knows that he's hit a home run. Now, now that I have this grand distinction, what in the world am I supposed to say? I could easily spend this time praising the accomplishments of this party and attacking the Republicans, but I don't choose to do that. I could list the many problems which Americans have. I could list the problems which cause people to feel cynical, angry, frustrated. Problems which include lack of integrity in government, the feeling that the individual no longer counts, the reality of material and spiritual poverty, the feeling that the grand American experiment is failing or has failed. I could recite these problems and then I could sit down and offer no solutions. 
but I don't choose to do that either. The citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more than a recital of problems. There are hundreds of telegrams in Barbara Jordan's hotel room the next morning. And there's talk. What about Barbara Jordan as a potential VP? Well, I believe the answer to that question lies in our concept of governing. Our concept of governing is derived from our view of people. It is a concept deeply rooted in a set of beliefs firmly etched in the national conscience of all of us. I really enjoyed being in the convention. I went there every day. Uh, I do remember uh, Barbara Jordan's speech just bringing down the house and how amazing it was to, uh, you know, see Barbara Jordan up on the podium and, and just, you know, what a, what a great moment it was. Jesse Jackson says if any person had done that speech, they would be considered for the vice presidency. If a white man had gotten up and made a speech like that, they'd be considered. And, you know, he's probably right. Jesse Jackson is at this convention with the Illinois delegation in 72. He had a fight with Richard Daly over delegates. Now the two sides had compromised kind of a theme of this convention. In the end, the Carter people, and we don't have an actual quote from Carter or statement from Carter about it, at least not one that I could find directly, but it's through their actions, the Carter people do quiet any talk about Barbara Jordan as a potential vice presidential running mate and eventually seek her out to make a statement. She makes a statement, says, look, I'm going to back whoever Jimmy Carter wants, which is Good enough for most of the media to quiet it down. Carter was already in some ways a precedent-breaking candidate, not in who he was, certainly, as a you know white male, but in who he was as a non-politician or as a, I should say, a relatively inexperienced politician, a very new figure, and uh, who knows? But there's, there's that, that little glimmer that possibly you could have had an African-American woman as vice president as early as 76. It's hard, the politics of it. Carter's run in the South, too. Joe Kieslack, the convention crasher we were talking about from Ohio, bars a badge from a Udall delegate who doesn't want to see his guy not win the, the nomination, and gets on TV in the back of an interview, stands behind Howard Senator Howard Metzabom of Ohio while he's being interviewed on NBC. But it didn't work out so well for John Glenn. If there was any talk... Of him being vice presidential now from Carter's own statements, he doesn't seem to be top of the list. It certainly ended the national conversation about him after the dull speech. There would be no chemistry on the ticket, is what Carter's aides say to reporters. There would be one more vice presidential nomination. Um, Fritz Ifaw is nominated by a disabled veteran who is against the war, Ron Kovic. I am the living dead, Kovic says in his speech, seconding a Faw. Faw makes a pitch for amnesty for all Vietnam service evaders. He then withdraws his name. He'll go back to Oklahoma, and he'll be put in a jail cell. But only for 36 hours. A judge 
will throw the case out. His conscientious objector appeal in 1970 was never processed properly, and he should have been noticed that it was ongoing when he wasn't. Whether it was because of this appearance at the convention or not, amnesty will become part of the Carter platform and something he executes as president. Some form of it might have happened, no matter who won. It's New Jersey and then Ohio that put Carter over. He gets 2,238 and a half delegate votes. Ulaw gets 329, Brown 300, Wallace gets 57, officially ending him as a force in national politics. There are then a scattering of delegate votes. There's an anti-abortion candidate, McCarthy, that gets some, uh, a woman, Ellen McCarthy, that gets some votes. Frank Church gets a few. Barbara Jordan gets a delegate to vote for. There's a few, a few others scattered around. Carter calls Mondale at the Carlisle Hotel. Hi, did I wake you up? Would you like to run with me? Mondale, who had installed a phone line in order to get quick access to the candidate if needed, gives Carter, uh, by his account, one of the fastest yeses he had ever gotten. Okay, don't tell a soul. Carter had to tell the Secret Service, who rush over to the Carlisle, as Mondale is now a subject of their protection. Carter says that he had in his mind both Muskie and Mondale, but decided on Mondale. And his reasons for selecting Mondale were not that traditional. Sure, there were some benefits to him um, politically. You know, he was the candidate of the of the liberals. He could represent that group that in 1972 did, after all, take over the party in the last convention. They had to give it back after losing the general. But Carter says he was from a small town, a preacher's son. We were personally compatible and laughed a lot, even as we discussed some of the more serious issues of the nation. He was prepared when he came to visit me in Plains, something I would be real important to Jimmy Carter. And now Mondale turns out to be one of the better picks in an election. I'm not going to go as far as to say one of the better vice presidents. I mean, that really would require more information and assessment, but one of the better picks for an election. First of all, Carter kind of it enforces that anti-candidate image of him, that he picks somebody who wasn't the top talk of all of the politicos. I talked to John Poland about that. I, I was for Mondale to run for president, and in 1970. For whenever it was, he announced that he wasn't going to be a candidate. Then I knew he was a, a, a smart guy and normal, you know. <laughs> said, okay, anybody anybody who's smart enough to not run for president ought to be president. So I was a big Mondale fan. The other thing Mondale goes on to do is uh, one of the big functions of a vice presidential candidate. He performs really well against the Republican nominee, Bob Dole, in the vice presidential debate. And that's when the election gets really tight. And it's a pretty important moment for the Carter-Mondale campaign. So, you know, Carter does two things of note. Keeps it secret and picks somebody who he wasn't seen as forced to pick. Mondale makes a nice speech 
a lot of the theme of it is the theme of this convention. We're no longer north against south, south against north. Now we stand together. Here's Richard Reeves. Jimmy Carter had arrived in Madison Square Garden at 9.05 p.m., having made the 20-block trip from the Americana in three minutes as 10 New York police cars and scooters cleared the avenue of traffic for his Chrysler limousine. The Chrysler drove up the ramp on 33rd Street to the fifth level of the garden, and the nominee went into his VIP trailer, the one set up like a large living room which had been practically unused until now, where he was met by Jerry Rafshoon and a television makeup man. What about the lights, Carter said. Carter people, the television networks, and the DNC had been arguing about the lights since noon. Rafshoon wanted the garden lights dimmed before Carter's entrance. Then a single spotlight in the ceiling would come dramatically on, hitting the podium and... CBS, NBC, and ABC who would be forced to work in the darkened arena and then keep their cameras focused on the only light pool, argued that they were paying 80% of the cost of the garden lighting and they wanted light for crowd reaction shots during the acceptance speech. The Carter people won. Convention manager Andy Shea sided with them, saying he was the landlord of the place. The only problem with that plan was... The garden actually had no light dimming system. The things were either on or off. The surges of current while the lights were going up and down might blow the garden's main circuit breakers, leaving Carter to accept the nomination by flashlight or candles. By 5.30, they finally figured that it could be done safely, if the air conditioning was shut off. So, out in the Ohio delegation, Claire Smith was so cold, the air conditioning was on full blast, lowering the temperature of the hall to compensate for the heat that was going to build up when Carter came on. The lights dimmed, and the cooling shut off. All the delegates could see was Bob Strauss and Jerry Rafshoon waving their arms at each other in front of the microphones. Both men were animated talkers. And what looked like two Rome traffic cops was just Carter's media man explaining to the party chairman what was going to happen with the lights. The crowd amused itself by batting a couple of red, white, and blue beach balls back and forth in the air, a time-killing trick the convention planners borrowed from rock concerts. Jimmy Carter's roots go deep into the dark red soil of southwest Georgia. My impression of the 76 convention was that it was very effective, a great show. Uh, the film that they did on Jimmy Carter, you know, the little kind of 12-minute biographical film, I think is one of the most effective pieces of, of political communication I've ever seen. It just touched all the right notes. It's... And although I've got a good chance to get an education as an engineer and a scientist, nobody in my family before my generation ever had a chance to finish high school. We've always worked for a living. We know what it means to work. A campaign that was marked in the beginning by loneliness. Hey, hey, hey. There were no reporters, no cameras, no secret service nearby when Jimmy first walked up and introduced himself to countless voters. This style was unheard of for a presidential hopeful, but for Jimmy Carter, there was no other way. Jimmy Carter came into the hall just 10.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the exact time that had been put on the schedule 10 months before. 
He moved past the Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Utah delegations, touching hands along the way. I wonder how his mother was in that picture here today, standing watching his son nominate his coach. You know, even when a candidate wins the election and becomes president, he doesn't do it in such circumstances as this. He's not in a huge hall. He's probably in a hotel somewhere. My name is Jimmy Carter, and I'm running for president. Ben. It's been a long time since I said those words the first time. We'll go forward from this convention with some differences of opinion, perhaps but nevertheless united in our calm determination to make our country large and driving and generous. America's birth opened a new chapter in mankind's history. Ours was the first nation to dedicate itself clearly to basic moral and philosophical principles. That all people are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the power of government is derived from the consent of the government. This, this national commitment was a singular act of wisdom and courage. We have an America that, in Bob Dylan's phrase, is busy being born, not busy dying. We can have an American government. It was a speech that was very effective. Here's what John Poland says about it. Um, I thought it was good, and I thought it was good in the sense that it was, uh, you know, he wasn't an orator like Bill Clinton or uh, a John Kennedy. He he was not an orator of that uh, style and of that ability, but he was calm, he was professional, he was deliberate, he was clearly intelligent. And at a time, we wanted someone who I think was calm. And I think it was an excellent, again, coming out. That whole convention, including Barbara Jordan's speech, which I have seen on video. And uh, uh, it, it created a, it, it capped uh, a, a several days of a convention that created the momentum and the uh, perception that we as a party were united and we were uh, unite, you know, in an attempt to unite the country again. It was a very, very positive experience, and his speech, I think, was the culmination of that. And once again, as brothers and sisters, our hearts were swelled with pride to call ourselves Americans. Thank you very much. But it's the events afterward, too, that really make the 1976 floor show something special. 
Bob Strauss, who's in control of the band and control of the microphone, gets to the microphone and begins this unity speech. But he does it by calling name after name, starting with the people who Carter was running against, to now come up to the podium and help to anoint this new person who's going to lead the party's effort. Senator Scoop Jackson, he calls. Congressman Morris Udall, he calls. Senator Frank Church, he calls. Governor Jerry Brown, he calls, comes up. Governor George Wallace, he calls, and he comes up. Senator Ed Muskie, he calls, he gets up. Senator John Glenn, he calls, he gets up. Mayor Richard Daly, Senator Hubert Humphrey. Richard Reeves says that Jim Teague, the hall manager, was standing at the back of the podium, wondering how much weight the temporary floor could really hold. It would be tested even further. Senator Al Cranston, have we missed anybody? He starts bringing up people who had worked in the convention. Arthur Krim, Lou Archer, Dorothy Bush, Mr. Hamilton Jordan, Mr. Jody Powell. Then he remembers a few more politicos. Joe Fitzpatrick of Virginia, Senator Joe Biden. They all come up. Yes, even Joe Biden. He's everywhere, right? Comes up to the uh, convention podium, and they're all standing there in this show of unity behind Carter. But there's more. Lindy Boggs, the convention chairman, takes the microphone and then announces that she will recognize for the benediction the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., from the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And now this convention that's hooting and shouting is silenced. I would like very much if we would cease walking, talking, in fact, not a word to be uttered unless that word is uttered to God. Given who is speaking, he has the respect of all of the thousands of people who were there. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, his countenance upon you, and give you peace now and always. Amen. I think the the image that lingers in my mind uh, that I'd read about was when uh, Papa King, Martin Luther King's father, in other words, Martin Luther King Sr., uh, gave the closing invocation. And it's my understanding that there, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. That's Rick Perlstein again. When he's finished, Strauss signals the orchestra to start playing We Shall Overcome. And among other things, there's there's this moment where Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. and George Wallace exchange a handshake. Jimmy Carter's behind them. 
And you have in 1976 in New York, one of the most effective conventions ever. I, I think the Carter, I think the 76 convention, I think it gave him a real boost because he was truly Jimmy Who. He was governor from Georgia. Nobody really knew him that well. You know, it seems like an easy thing. It's a party meeting together with people of the same party, right? And putting on a show. And you're going to see after 76, certainly these things are much more choreographed, although there's bad episodes. 1980, I think 26, 2016 in Philadelphia was, was although it attempted choreographing, there was some horrible, you know, unity there. So I think like it's very important for politics that you Knowing your candidate in the proper send-off. It's still, to this day, these big media events, even if there's not as much speculation, where that kind of ended in probably your last real convention decision was 1980, and that wasn't even much of one. So since then, they've mostly been media events, and it's that everyone wanting to have this Rob Strauss moment of this really run well-run campaign, but even with a friendly crowd, a friendly group of people and a nominee that has the delegates, their own delegates being the majority of the convention, it can be pretty hard to actually pull it off. But 76 remains an example of one of the best ones. Now, what does it mean? Carter leaves this convention with a uh, 30-point lead in the polls. It doesn't mean he's going to win the election uh, immediately because he makes some mistakes in the November campaign, and he can Ford actually gets things pretty close. There's also a series of debates between the two candidates that you hadn't had in the 72 or 68 or 64 elections. But what got him that poll increase that enabled him to survive through the campaign and, and win at the end, partially is, that con is this convention, the, the introduction of Jimmy Carter to America. Hope you enjoyed this look at one of uh, at least what the politicos consider one of the best run conventions ever and the most helpful convention that either party has had when bill clinton runs in the same madison square garden as the place for his convention 76 is on the minds of many people and barbara jordan will speak again at the 92 convention Thanks for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I want to thank John Poland. I want to thank Rick Perlstein. I want to thank uh, Linda Grimmich and um, Billy Rogers for coming on from the Texas delegation in the Texas Carter Campaign 76. If you like the program, please spread the word about it. Remember to subscribe. That helps. Write a review if you're so inclined. And thanks for listening.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.